My name is Joan Kerr, and we're happy to have you with us for today's program. The topic tonight is teaching and learning post-COVID. The changes brought on by the coronavirus pandemic, as we all know, have impacted every person, every industry, every region, and every communal activity for nearly all of 2020. Even after the much-hoped-for vaccine is distributed, some believe that life and work patterns have been forever altered. What comes next in the field of global education is the subject of tonight's program. I'd like to introduce my first guests. Autumn Tallman is Associate Director of Study Abroad in International Programs here at the University of Iowa. She's also the Senior Associate Director for International Health, Safety, and Security. So thanks for being with us, Autumn. Thank you, Joan. Mm -hmm. uh, Ana Rodriguez Rodriguez is an Associate Professor in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese, and she's also led uh, study abroad programs for many years. Uh, hi, Ana. Nice to have you with us tonight. Hi, thank you. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a pleasure to introduce Julie Zerwick, the Dean of the College of Nursing here at the University of Iowa. Thank you, Julie, for taking the time to be with us. Thanks, Joan. Mm -hmm. In this opening segment, we wanted to talk a little bit about patterns in global education, what had existed before the pandemic hit, uh, some of the innovative things that have happened since the onset of the pandemic, and what we might look forward to in the future. And I thought we would have Autumn kick us off. She certainly is the expert in this area. Um, Autumn, can you tell us a little bit about the traditional approach to uh, study abroad? Um, the kinds of opportunities have been most common in recent years. Sure. So in a typical year, the University of Iowa sends over a thousand students abroad each year. 1,300 is a typical number in recent years. And the majority of those students are participating in formal study abroad programs. Um, those might be administered by a program provider. Um, this would be a dedicated study abroad organization that we vet, we contract with, um, and we send students on the programs that they administer and staff abroad. Um, that kind of program provider also helps support our custom faculty-led program opportunities, where we send a University of Iowa faculty member abroad with students to teach a course or several courses, and then a study abroad provider in country helps support the logistics and um, kind of extracurriculars and student support services that groups need. So, um, I would say in a typical semester, we're sending primarily students on semester-length provider programs and um, a handful of exchange programs with foreign universities. And then the bulk of our students are participating in programs that are faculty-led, and those may happen in summer over the winter session or even during the spring semester over a break or during an asynchronous learning period for some of the colleges. Yeah, yeah. Well, and of course, um, as we all know, there was a dramatic change in spring of this last year once we all became aware of uh, what the pandemic was doing. You and your colleagues in study abroad had quite a massive task bringing uh, students back from locations all over the world. Um, maybe you can tell us just a little bit about what that was like and, and what you needed to do in order to return the students safely to the U.S. Sure. So this past spring was a typical spring. We had um, little over 500 students lined up to study abroad in spring 2020. Um, because academic cycles abroad can really vary, in some parts of the world, for example, in Asia, the academic, the academic semester tends to start later than it does in Iowa. So early in the spring semester, when we started to see the pandemic um, evolving and spreading, first in Wuhan, then in other areas of China, 
And then beyond that, um, there wasn't a lot of direct input and uh, impact initially. Um, most of our students who were headed to China or Asia weren't scheduled to depart until later. So um, with that small group of students, we were able to cancel programs, have them defer enrollment to the future, um, or make alternate plans um, if they wouldn't be able to travel later on. Um, really, it was in March when um, it became an all hands on deck process of coordinating the return of hundreds of students from Europe, um, then from Latin America, from a few places in Africa and some other locations in Asia. Um, and that all needed to happen in rapid succession over a period of days. Um, usually we um, have a system in place where one person will be on call to handle crisis response for any of our travelers abroad. Um, that's often me or somebody else um, who may be carrying the emergency cell after hours. And in this situation, it simply wasn't possible for our staff to just turn a crisis situation over to one person or a smaller team of people. We needed to scale up. So that meant that um, really everyone on staff and study abroad in one way or another was involved in reaching out to students, to program providers, to parents, um, either helping in the process of bringing students home or also importantly, once they were back, helping with all of the follow-up details. Um, these were students who were shocked, dazed, um, disappointed, sad. Um, you know, they, here they were having an amazing experience and um, that was cut short. And I think initially the students who were in Italy and then Spain, two of the countries that we first brought students home from, um, it really hadn't sunk in for anyone quite yet um, that we were in for, uh, in for the long haul with this. And so initially we had students reacting to the news from their program provider or from us that they needed to return home um, with a kind of disbelief or um, lots of wishful thinking. Um, lots of students who came up with plans um, to say, well, how about I leave Italy and I will go backpack around or spend some time in Ireland and then this will blow over in a few weeks and I'll come back. Um, so it really was, was a series of many conversations about risk tolerance, about what we anticipated um, in the weeks and months to come um, to really help make it clear to everyone that this is, was an issue about health risk primarily. But when you're talking about international travel, there's more to it than just a simple assessment of where the health risk is or isn't. Um, a pandemic um, is, a moving, is a moving entity. Um, and so being back in your home base becomes really important when something is evolving in often unpredictable and um, swift ways. And so we talked with students and parents and really tried to convey that aside from assessing health risk in different locations, as this evolved, we really started to see restrictions on travel um, so just because you're in a location that is relatively low risk health-wise, um, it doesn't mean it's going to stay that way. And even if it does stay that way, it's possible that commercial air travel will be disrupted. We saw that happen. We saw many routes just swiftly disappear. Um, in some situations, we did indeed involve charter flight uh, plans to help get a few students home. Um, for example, in Ecuador, which was a place that really wasn't on the radar of many people tracking the evolving pandemic, very swiftly Ecuador took action 
um, to shut down travel and to be as restrictive as possible in their response process. And so that did create a situation where um, we and other organizations, universities, companies um, with travelers there um, needed to come up uh, with some alternate plans to help bring travelers home. Yeah, wow. I, well, I know it was a massive undertaking and thankfully everybody came home safely and, and that is terrific. Um, what do you think will be happening in the, in the spring semester, uh, on towards summer, next fall? Obviously, we all know that there are lots of vagaries about the vaccine and its distribution and when things will begin to truly open up again. But as, as you're planning for the future and helping students guide their, their own um, ambitions, um, how do you determine whether something can be done in spring or late spring or summer or fall? Uh, how, how do you come to conclusions about what can happen? So we have a well-established policy um, about student travel um, for international programs. And so um, that has been our guide for years prior to the pandemic and it, it continues to be our guide now. Um, we look primarily at Department of State advisories, also CDC Travelers Health Guidance. We look at the World Health Organization guidance. Um, we consult with a private security partner um, and also with our international insurance provider um, for assistance in assessing um, health risks, um, travel risks, and um, just kind of capacity of hospitals and other things. Mm -hmm. um, Right now, based on all of those kind of standard risk assessment um, criteria that we look at, um, it's a no-go right now for student travel. Um, at this stage, the Board of Regents has made a decision that across all of the Iowa Regents schools, there will not be student travel approved for this spring semester right now. Um, summer is to be determined. Um, here at the University of Iowa, we have a risk assessment process in place that allows us to consider any upcoming student travel three months in advance of a departure date. Um, we've added kind of an extra time window um, and cushion to ensure that even if the Board of Regents may maintain a 30-day window um, as we progress through this um, and assess travel on that time frame, we want a little more time for students because if it doesn't look promising for them to travel, they need plenty of time to be able to pivot um, to go to a plan B that would involve enrolling in Iowa coursework instead, um, possibly deferring travel to a future session. Um, so that's the plan we have in place. As long as the Board of Regents advises against student travel, our students won't travel. Um, if and when we're asked to, to reinitiate those assessments, we'll continue to do that on a three-month rolling basis. Mm -hmm. So right now for beyond spring, um, looking to summer, we're working primarily with faculty-led virtual programming for this coming summer. Um, and we also have four virtual faculty-led courses lined up for this winterum, um, which will begin a little bit later this month, right at the end of December. Um, we have close to 80 students enrolled in the winterum virtual course offerings. Um, these include two courses that are being organized out of the Tippi College of Business. Um, one partners with the Chimba program in Italy, which is a program also adm administered out of the Tippi College of Business. And they're also setting up um, consultancies for students to engage with partners in Oceania and Asia on a variety of projects. 
And then in addition to that, we have um, a um, uh, Ray Fagenbaum, who is working on an international medicine course. This is something that he's taught abroad in India and in the Dominican Republic in the past. And so we're working on a virtual version of that course, uh, which will allow him and his students to connect with partners in hospitals and clinics abroad um, and learn about um, just their overall practices and the way that they approach health issues in that particular location. Um, but also right now, this is an especially interesting time, I think, for our pre-health students to have that kind of engagement. Mm -hmm. And then finally, for this winter, we'll have John Degada um, running an international writing um, course that will connect students with writers worldwide. Um, and they'll be engaged in the writing process and also just considering the concept of travel writing um, and what that, what that means um, when you are place bound. So a lot of our process now has meant a kind of pivot to virtual learning, um, yet with a recognition that that certainly can't replace travel programming. It doesn't replicate it either. Um, it's a different animal. So I think for some of the courses that we traditionally teach abroad, they do lend themselves to that kind of virtual pivot. Um, but at the same time, there are other courses that don't necessarily. Mm -hmm. Looking beyond summer, um, that's, I think, where things get interesting. We do have students applying for summer travel programs offered by providers. Um, I'm not hugely optimistic that we'll be able to support travel quite yet. Um, I think a lot really depends on what happens with the rollout of vaccinations. Um, how accessible are they? How effective are they? Um, if you need to have more than one vaccination, how frequent will that need to be? If you're due for one and you're abroad, how accessible would that be? Um, so I think there's, there's still a lot to come. We're really right in the middle of this situation. Um, and it's very hard to look into a crystal ball and know exactly when travel can reinitiate mm -hmm. in the way that we're accustomed to um, when there isn't a pandemic. Yeah. We will see... Um, I do see some of our program providers um, constructing rather elaborate um, kind of risk assessment tools um, that aggregate data and pull together um, a, a variety of risk assessment indicators to kind of help determine where they are willing to run programs or not, mm -hmm. um, and when they can initiate one or when they need to pull the plug. So it will be interesting to see that evolve. Um, However, right now, I don't think that that kind of risk assessment tool is very helpful for student travel. Mm -hmm. It may be helpful if, for example, a faculty member has an essential need to travel. Um, and so we're trying to plan kind of a window of opportunity for when a few weeks from now is a good time to go to X place. Um, that kind of you know, risk management for travel, I think is possible now. We see in the private sector, and among humanitarian organizations that travel is certainly continuing in some capacity when there's an essential need. Um, but for students, I think we just, we still have a little ways to go still. Um, and when things do start up again, I think it's going to be very important for us to continue some of the solid partnerships that we have with study abroad providers um, abroad who have staff on the ground year round and can help our students and our faculty mm -hmm. um, who go and who visit in the future. 
Yeah, it's a complex puzzle. Uh, lots of pieces have to fit together and in order to, to make it all work and, and provide for the safety. And I, and I know that this is maybe a good time to move on to Ana because Ana has uh, done the Valladolid program in Spain for many years with her students. And uh, that's a summer program. Uh, I imagine it's disappointing for you to hear, Ana, that uh, summer travel may not happen uh, this year for University of Iowa students and for the course you teach. Um, I wonder if you can, can give us a little bit of a picture of what that study abroad program is like in normal times and, and what you feel it does for your students who can take part. Sure. Um, the Valladolid program has been very successful in the last few years. I started directing it in 2012. And it's a success because it's the perfect, it's the perfect study abroad experience. Uh, it's uh, six weeks when you are, you go to Spain, to the city of Valladolid. Uh, you take, the students take classes over there with, with the faculty from the University of Valladolid and they get credit they can use towards their degree here in Iowa, of course. They, I should say that they have a faculty member who goes with them, it has been me in the last few years. Uh, so they feel very secure, very safe, because there is someone from Iowa who also is very knowledgeable with Spain, who can be like, you know, a bridge between in the experience. These shorter programs, um, everything is very intense, everything happens very quickly, so you have to make sure that the students get adjusted really quickly so they can enjoy the, the stay in a very, very good way. So again, for five weeks, uh, they are in Valladolid, they take classes, and they live with host families, which is is you know, one of the wonderful things of this program. The, the families are uh, very well selected. They have a real interest in helping students from abroad uh, and they, they live with them. They only speak Spanish. <laughs> so students practice their Spanish very well. It's amazing how their Spanish improves in just a matter of a few weeks over the summer. It's, it's incredible. And, and the last week of the program, they are not in Valladolid anymore. They have a week of independent travel. They, they travel in groups. I don't go with them. I stay in Spain with my cell phone, with, with my internet, with everything in case they need me. And even if someone, this has never happened, so I cross my fingers. But if someone gets sick or needs really, really help, you know, physical help, I would be there immediately. Um, so th that week is also a dream because by, by the end of the program, students feel very confident about their Spanish skills, about their knowledge of Spanish culture. They have been living with the Spaniards for five weeks already in Valladolid. They have been taking classes and the professors over there are wonderful. They, they, they prepare these classes specifically to make them learn a lot really quickly about the culture, about the literature, about how Spaniards are. So that week works wonderfully. And that's why the program, the program is so successful. It has been very disappointing in, in March. Uh, we had a big group of students actually ready to go in May. And we had to, we had to cancel. And I think this summer is going to, to be the same thing. I always tell my students that if Valladolid doesn't work for them, at least they should go somewhere else. They should go abroad, uh, to a Spanish-speaking country or another country, I don't care. Because a study abroad is a wonderful opportunity to see the world, to experiment different styles of education, to, to understand the new culture, to improve your language skills, to explore different career opportunities. To, they make usually lifelong friends during the experience. I'm from Iowa that are in the program with them, some in Spain, in my case, in this program. 
graduate school admissions love students who went abroad because they 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 show a curiosity about the world and about learning that other students uh, cannot demonstrate in such a practical and, and, and clear way. I could go on and on, but I can <laughs> summarize saying that the study abroad is an amazing life experience, but also, also students with the study abroad, they develop global competency. It's a personal awareness and respect for other cultural perspectives, other cultural norms. They develop an ability to adapt and to be flexible in, in unfamiliar situations. They have to confront a lot of unfamiliar situations uh, in doing this type of experience. And they learn how to effectively communicate across cultural and linguistic boundaries. So I think in today's globalized world, global competencies is critical for the future of our students. So I always tell them, come to Valladolid if you can, but if that's not your program, make sure you go somewhere else. And I always talk to people around the university, let's make this easier for our students. Let's try to make this easier and, and maybe cheaper <laughs> because sometimes um, they really want to go and it's hard to pay for, for the program. And there are nice scholarships and other opportunities, but I would love to see our students going abroad. And uh, I know today we're talking about things that are changing. I would like to, to also mention, I don't want this type of program to change. I mean, what makes these programs magical and so special and really life-changing is that they are there surrounded by people from other cultures and they grow so much as students, as, as foreign language speakers and as, as persons in general. Uh, I am a real a true fan of study abroad. And I can't recommend it more for, for any student. <laughs> wow, what's well, a great testimonial. Thank you. And, and um, I think everybody on this call will agree. Um, Julie, it's a, it's a good time to bring you in, I think, because as the Dean of the College of Nursing, uh, you have, a, I think your students probably have a very kind of regimented uh, progression throughout the, the healthcare uh, learning that they're doing in the College of Nursing. Um, and yet there are programs where um, students in, in your college uh, can go abroad and can have that uh, global experience experience uh, in their education. Would you tell us a little bit about how the pandemic has changed your, your normal practices in the College of Nursing in terms of rotations and face-to-face you know, -face experiences? Um, and then also maybe talk a little bit about some of the global opportunities there are for students in the College of Nursing. Thanks, Joan. Uh, I think the health science colleges have been in a bit of a different position than many of the other programs on campus because we have um, been able to communicate with the academic leadership of the university that there's a need to maintain face-to-face -face contact for health science programs. So we've um, been able to keep students in their clinical courses, um, in their lab courses. They're very well protected in terms of the personal um, protective equipment that they have to wear. And then we're very careful in terms of what courses they, um, they are doing in, in a classroom, for example. So much of their learning also that was classroom-based uh, switched to a remote or, or some kind of a combined um, learning opportunity. Um, so they've been progressing. We've been very successful working with our, our good colleagues at the University of Iowa Hospital and Clinics to keep students uh, moving through graduation. I think the one place though that we have been impacted is those global opportunities. As you mentioned in the health professions, um, 
it has not been believed that you could fit in a study abroad because they have such a, um, uh, a load of required courses. However, we've seen that that's um, hugely valuable and have found some ways to try and build in um, opportunities where students can go to other countries. And the example that I would give is we have a community health practicum now that occurs in Eswatini and students spend the first part of the semester preparing for that experience, think, learning about um, the community that they're actually gonna be engaged in and then traveling there and spending two weeks where they're working part of the time in the hospital, part of the time in the community with high school students, with nurses there. And that has been going on for uh, quite a number of semesters now. We've, again, as Anna mentioned, we've seen, we've actually measured um, cultural competence between students who've used that opportunity versus our students who didn't have the same opportunity to go and saw significant differences. So it really has a great impact. How the faculty have been able to pivot uh, this semester is that there's a group of students who still have uh, Eswatini as their community health practicum, but they're doing it at a distance. So they're doing uh, some health assessments, they're creating a survey so that the next group of students when they are able to travel, we'll have a survey ready to launch. They have, will have a communication approach to utilize. They will have a data analysis uh, system in order to plug that data in. Um, and they'll, they will obtain institutional review board approval for all of that. So that group has just been able to really advance the work for the group that will come, which is um, also gonna have a tremendous impact. Yeah, and, and I can't imagine that there could be a more challenging and kind of thrilling time to be involved in learning about healthcare, not only in your own country, but, you know, in other places in the world that have very different health care systems or different, you know, societal structures. Um, very, very interesting time for your students, I'm sure, to have this, this kind of exposure. Um, in terms of your research, um, the, your, your faculty and international collaborations they may be involved with, um, are your faculty members able to keep up some of those, those relationships during this strange time? You know, the ones that have really solid um, connections where it's been groups that have worked together for years, maybe they're collaborating already on a project, maybe they're working on manuscripts together, they've continued that that because they're using the same mode of communication that they've been already doing at a distance. It's not, it's just, it doesn't always occur face to face. And so the things that they had built prior that work equally as well at this point in time, they're con they are continuing to a certain mm -hmm. extent. Mm -hmm. Well, before we finish up here, is there anything any of you would like to say about your sort of your wishes for um, the post-COVID time? What do we want to go back to? Anna, I know what you want to go back to for sure. Uh, you know, travel, on-site, um, study abroad, cultural immersion experiences. But are there some things that, that we've all learned how to do during this period that will be really useful, perhaps in terms of bringing more students into a global experience um, um, through through virtual excursions. Autumn, what would you have to say? Um, so, yeah, I would second what Anna said earlier. I, I would love the world to just go back to what we had before, and I want to make sure that we retain um, 
the quality and the integrity of the travel programming that we already have in place. So I think that will be a joyous day when that is possible. Um, I do think the, the world is changing and international education, I think will be significantly changed by this experience. And I imagine that there will be some innovation that arises during this time that will endure even when we're able um, to send students abroad again. Um, and hopefully that will enhance what we were doing before. I could see some degree of virtual programming continuing. And if it does that, it might be a kind of feeder, a kind of gateway opportunity for students. Um, for example, now we sometimes see students gravitating towards faculty-led programs because there's that familiarity with an instructor that they already know. And so they can, for the first time, imagine themselves doing something abroad because it feels familiar, it feels protective. And I think for some students, being able to do a virtual internship or a virtual course um, is a way of kind of getting your feet wet um, and just kind of getting a sense, getting a taste for it. Um, and that may embolden some students to then do more um, later on. I also think that there may be um, some innovations that happen. For example, I'm thinking of one provider program that works with some of our students, but they also work with high school age students. Several years ago, they started uh, a virtual program that brings together high school students in the US and high school students in Yemen. Um, or other places of, of high conflict where it just wouldn't be possible to send our students there or to easily bring students from there um, to the US. And so I think as soon as we've kind of been forced into this new virtual world, I see faculty on our campus coming up with ideas that I just, I don't think that that would have happened if we hadn't really gone through this experience together. So. Um, I'm excited by the things that I see faculty developing for a virtual format, and I do think some of that innovation will carry over and enhance the travel courses later. Mm -hmm. That might mean supplemental feeder programs, things that can really only happen in a virtual format, um, or potentially travel courses that also have greater facility to shift to virtual um, if there's ever a reason for a student to return home early or for, for a program to need to be canceled early. Mm -hmm. So it's not just us who've gone through this virtual experience. Um, universities the world over suddenly have built this virtual course capacity that really didn't exist mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. And I think that there will be new ways for us to engage and connect um, to enhance what we were already doing. Mm -hmm. Well, goodness, that uh, time has flown by here. I, I think we've reached the end of our, our segment, but boy, I want to say thank you so much to Autumn Tolman, to Ana Rodriguez-Rodriguez, and to Julie Zerwick. Thank you for sharing uh, this conversation with us this evening. We appreciate it very much. And I hope that uh, everybody will stay with us for just a uh, couple seconds from now. We will go into the second segment of our program. This is World Canvas from International Programs, and we'll be back in just a minute. Hello, my name is Joan Kerr, and we're happy to have you with us for this second segment of World Canvas. Uh, I'd like to introduce our guests. Um, we are going to go first to uh, Cassie Barnhart in just a moment. She's an associate professor in the College of Education here at the University of Iowa. Also joining us is Jeff Lai, a graduate student in the College of Education at the UI. And Amy Alice Chastain is uh, associate professor of instruction English as, in English as a second language here at the University of Iowa. Uh, thank you all for being with us this afternoon. Really appreciate it. And it's uh, good to see you all. 
Um, Cassie, I wanted to go first to you. Uh, as a faculty member in the College of Education, I know you have been utilizing virtual platforms for teaching and engaging with students since the onset of the pandemic. Um, but you've also used virtual platforms some, for some of the international collaborations you've undertaken with the University of Oslo. I know you have other international research projects underway. Um, how does technology aid you in your teaching and in your research or professional development? Thanks, Joan. I'm so glad that I have the opportunity to talk about some of the work that we've been involved with. Um, specifically, uh, a few years back, a colleague in, of mine in, the, in higher education student affairs, which is my field of study within education, approached me about um, sort of rethinking how we do mobility and how we do international, internationalization. Specifically, the priority was to think about internationalization from a sustainability perspective, not just from the climate aspects of sustainability, but also thinking about sustainability in the course of graduate education. Graduate education uniquely fosters professional networks, which should be sustainable and um, part of a scholar's entire career to build out research collaborators, to engage in mutual science around collective problems, to bring different comparative views to, you know, together to align. And so when, when he approached me, we, um, we thought, how can we turn, turn the model of mobility around for graduate students specifically by using virtual technologies and bringing, um, creating virtual mobility and to see if it's compatible with some of the learning outcomes associated with physical mobility and to also bring international perspectives home through one's virtual technology. So what we ended up doing is our two programs um, have been driven by us as faculty, as opposed to a student picking a country and traveling and learning there, we as faculty are embedding and designing international learning experiences within the within our courses through assignments, through learning activities, through professional development and bringing in speakers. Um, and there's also just a dose of physical mobility in the past. <laughs> this year, not as much, but <laughs> there are a few aspects of physical mobility. Um, so that's sort of the foundation for which um, we had an opportunity when COVID arose, um, you usually don't hear those words together, opportunity and COVID, but we had been doing some of this work together for some time. And when we were faced with the, the requirement of being online, our students were already in these networks, connected to each other, and had the opportunity to sort of keep on, keep on expanding. They got, a, in some ways, they got a little more um, ambitious with who they approached us with in terms of who they wanted us to engage in global scholars. In some ways, people that wouldn't necessarily be um, willing to sit in a virtual meeting with you before are even more so now, given that's the only context that we have before us. <laughs> so um, that's a little bit of an overview. Yeah, uh, how would you say that technology has affected the um, sort of professional development side of things? You know, going to conferences and so on, that's, that's important for networking and for, for, you know, sharing ideas with people who are in your field or maybe a little bit aside from your field or you discover some new interest you didn't know you had before. Um, how has technology sort of helped bridge that gap? 
Yeah. So I think one clear example is creating access for students that wouldn't otherwise be able to afford to do so. Um, the, the quality of the access isn't necessarily always where it needs to be. Sometimes it's sort of contained to just a session. So you're learning about information in your field on an important topic, um, but you might not be getting to interact with, um, you know, the scholars and sort of the social context that is really important to cultivating research networks and, and collaborators too. So there's access in one way, but it's just on some dimensions. So that's one thing that's happened through conferences. I would also say that um, it's uh, sort of pushed our research teams to be even more expansive. So we've seen some of the, like even with the project I was talking about before, we've seen some of those folks decide to always participate in a research group, even though we're balancing like three and four time zones. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the technology gives us the capacity to do it. And now people are willing if they can, you know, have sort of the work from home freedom to, you know, decide, well, I'm going to have my research meeting at 11 o'clock at night, even though it's two o'clock in the afternoon for the folks who are in Iowa City. Um, so that's just a piece of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I, before we, we move on, I wonder if you can also talk a little bit about the work you've been doing for some time, as I understand it, um, in Kosovo regarding the educational system in Kosovo. Yeah, I mean, specifically, we've been doing a little bit less in the virtual context. The project more broadly is focused on university-based reform to try to bring um, infrastructure and capacity building to um, all of the public universities in Kosovo. Um, there have been some important improvements around um, in the flagship university, but the, the universities that are scattered around the country um, are really more similar to our teaching colleges our, our, our normal schools from the early 20th century in the United States, and they need to expand and provide additional academic opportunities that are um, compatible with the labor market in those regional areas. And so I've been doing some of that work with students and other collaborators to focus on using data to identify opportunities for growth and change and faculty development that is aligned with those things. Yeah. Wow, really interesting. Uh, well, I want to bring in your graduate student in the College of Education, uh, Jeff Bly. Hi, Jeff. So nice to have you with us. <laughs> yep. So uh, I work with the Cassie Ensemble uh, Project, and I know there are some kind of like challenges we have during the uh, pandemic. Do you want me to describe sure. some of the challenges? Please, please. So yeah, so first is, of course, uh, we have some lower academic productivity because we don't have the physical space like library or office we can use. And sometimes we, I know some students, they need to use some kind of like labs, but in their home, they don't have these kind of uh, facilities. And also there is some uh, limited socialization or information circulation because, you know, if we are in a office setting, we will have some small talk after the meeting or after class between students but we don't have that kind of like privilege if we go online. Sure. And there's also a decreased sense of diversity because we don't see people of color on the campus. We only see people on, in our virtual classroom, which mm -hmm. not, might not be as diverse as mm -hmm. on campus activities. And also I want to um, mention that some student, international student, they decided to go back to their home country during the pandemic. So there is time zone difference and also there is a, another level of challenge for students with disabilities. Oh yeah, yeah. 
Um, uh, we've talked about some of the limitations. Are there any benefits that you feel you've discovered during this time when you're working more remotely? Yeah, I do. Um, I think some of our program um, specifically try to improve the situation. Like we have uh, virtual coffee shops for studying together. So it improves our uh, academic productivity. And also uh, beside our program, uh, the campus also uh, have a lot of like activities, um, like the event planning for International Education Week, we have that. And we also have some kind of like student organization that we have regular meetings. So that increase our sense of diversity and uh, social relations. Mm-hmm. Um, also there are some benefits like I'm not a very good person to do presentation. So during this uh, pandemic situation, I can just put the scripts beside my screen so I can just read it rather than very nervous and I don't know what I'm do- going to talk about. Um, also there is some kind of like, because well, we already have this kind of sense that we're going to do international uh, collaboration so going online, it's like, there's no difference because, because we're going to do online no matter uh, the situation. So that's one of the benefits we have. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to imagine what, what we would be like during this period where everybody is, is so contained in their own spaces. If we did not have all of this technology to help us, to allow us to work from home, to do whatever, I, I can't really imagine what that would be like. And for, for most of us, I think this isn't, um, at least 100% of the time, the desired way to, to get along in the world right now. But my gosh, it's certainly better than not being able to be in touch with anybody at all. And um, so you are toward the end of your study, Jeff? Are, are you sort of t- at the end or are you kind of in the middle of your study path? I'm kind of like in the middle of the, uh, my track because I'm just a second year student. And mm-hmm. I also feel like if I'm a first year student here, I might have a like higher kind of like challenges because I don't know what to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and what is your own personal uh, goal for, or do you wanna be uh, a faculty member at a university at some point? Or are you interested in doing, uh, you know, do you wanna be a teacher or what, what are you headed toward? Well, I discussed this question with Cassie like <laughs> a lot of times and there's a lot of like, uh, possibility I can do, but uh, for me personally, I'm kind of like a scholar activist. Mm-hmm. So I want to uh, combine my research with what's going on with the society mm-hmm. and try to improve it, which in the pandemic situation is very hard because you know there's a protest outside, but because of the pandemic, we're not allowed to go outside to go protest. But there's an alternative ways we can do that. For example, we can sign petitions. Uh, we can uh, deliver our information about it to our friends and explain the situation to our friends too. Also, we can kind of like put the focus of our research on the uh, neoliberalism, racism, and any kind of like those um, inequity. So that helps too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Gosh, well, uh, thank you for telling us a little bit about what, what you're all about. And I, I want to bring in our third guest for this segment, uh, Amy Alice Chastain. Thank you so much for being with us. And uh, so you teach in English as a second language and, and what an important program this is. Um, I know that technology has made it possible for you to offer uh, instruction across borders and your students wherever they may be. Um, but uh, there is also the element of uh, sort of um, cultural understanding of what it would be like to be a student attending the University of Iowa and um, English is not your first language. So you have many, many uh, complications and many of them very, very exciting. How can you help your students feel all of that while you're working virtually? A great question, Joan, and it's definitely something that we as a, as a program, as a department, um, across all the populations that we touch have been working really hard to do. And of course, I, I, I could hear a lot of similar challenges echoed by Cassie and Jeff. Um, first, you know, kind of in the inverse, but then also directly um, addressing what Jeff is talking about, about first year students, whether they're undergrads, whether they're grad students, um, or even students who are pursuing intensive English training. Um, and so our department touches all of those populations. Um, and certainly it, it, was, it was a surprise, but a pleasant surprise that we were able to welcome new students, um, even though the numbers are, as you can imagine, are much smaller than they have been in past semesters. Um, it's encouraging that there, there are students around the world who went ahead and, and enrolled, even though they had travel restrictions and visa restrictions and limitations to come and join us. But of course, you can imagine the challenges, um, both linguistically and culturally, as you mentioned, of meeting those needs for the students who have not yet come. Um, because as mentioned and echoed in the first segment and this one, you know, so much of international studies and study abroad is for that, that in-person cultural experience, you know, and being immersed in those kinds of things. And so... Um, I think that we're fortunate that we're able to welcome those students because we have these remote opportunities through Zoom classes and these things. Um, but the challenge, of course, is we have, we've had to make a lot of adjustments to the expectations, to the requirements for our courses um, because students who are still in their home countries are limited to what they have access to or to ways that they can practice their language outside of the time that we have together on the screen. Um, and so one of the partnerships that I'm really thankful for that we've been able to continue um, remotely is our partnership and collaboration between ESL programs and the Department of Rhetoric um, and specifically their Conversation Center practicum course. And so our director and I um, in the past semesters have gone in person and done some training with those students who are signed up for learning, you know, to communicate effectively with people who use other languages um, natively. And so we did that training and that kind of workshop in, a, in, in Zoom. Um, we opted to do that rather than any sort of recorded thing because we believe that the opportunity to interact is really important. And so we did it live, but via Zoom. And so rather than those students coming and visiting in person in our classrooms, and, and this is across all of our different programs, we, ha we have these students embedded in our intensive English programs, 
in our um, credit bearing programs that's um, largely undergraduate enrolled students, um, but also in our, in our TA um, courses that are focused on um, oral communication, we had those students um, embedded in those classes virtually this semester, 100% virtually. Um, and though we haven't viewed all the survey results yet, just anecdotally from, from being one of those teachers who had those students embedded, um, I feel like it went really well. And my class specifically in our credit bearing program had the most um, students not in the country. So um, the overwhelming majority of that course that I taught this semester had students um, in their home countries and they represented, as a group, we represented five different um, countries. So in that one class. Wow. So, you know, the challenges are there, but, but we're finding ways to, to compensate um, as much as we can. Mm. Uh, so, for example, when students are practicing their oral skills, do you find that um, did any of the students in the class uh, develop sort of a friendship or, or decide they wanted to communicate, for example, with one of the embedded students um, in an out of class time? Did some of those friendships happen so that there could be more um, practice and more friendship making? Yeah, interestingly, the, the one example I had in my own class of that is um, I had one grad student in that class who um, was originally from Korea. And um, through conversations outside of class with one of the partners, the partner introduced her virtually to another friend who was interested in meeting students, you know, here from other places. And they have since met for coffee and, and all sorts of things. And so I, I was really surprised and very happy to hear that, that that was still able to happen even under these circumstances, you know, because I can't imagine, you know, having been a study abroad student myself, I can't imagine coming from another country into kind of a lockdown situation in a, in a new and unfamiliar country and not having those natural opportunities to meet people in my community. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'll just switch over to Cassie for a second and ask, within the College of Education, uh, do you have a number of students in the College of Education who are international students? Do you have quite a large number of international students in any given year in the College of Education? I mean, certainly we have a number of uh, international students enrolled in the College of Ed. I would say at my perspective, my vantage point, my department is all graduate students. Oh, it is. Um, so. So I wouldn't, I, I don't think I can comment fairly on it. Yeah. teacher education programs and arguably teacher education programs have a lot of domestic students yeah, because sure. they tend to work in the U.S. <laughs> sure. Why, what were you thinking about that, Joan? No, well, I was just kind of wondering, um, just generally speaking in the courses, you know, uh, this semester, some courses uh, had some uh, in-class time and then some virtual elements as well. So, so there's a certain, there's a certain um, period of time when you do get to be face-to-face -face with a teacher or with the other students, but then the other portion of time might be all virtual. And I was just wondering how you have, have um, experienced both fellow faculty members and uh, students, whether graduate students or undergraduates you might know, um, have you felt that there was a certain kind of, you know, tough times sort of bring a certain kind of community out within a group that might not 
uh, form so easily if life was just going on as expected, you know? Um, sometimes these odd circumstances we find ourselves in, I imagine it's true with faculty members as well as students, you, you find yourselves connecting sort of in new ways and different ways. I think that one of these one of these criteria is the difference in some ways between undergraduate and graduate education. When graduate students enroll, they're, they're, they already sort of, they love at higher education, right? You're not going to pursue a master's or a doctorate unless you have a lot of, uh, you know, motivation to do so. And so I, I, I feel really privileged with the extent to which the students in the classes that I teach are highly motivated to engage. You know, even if they, even if the, the circumstances around them require them to have their video camera off, they're still in the chat and using their voice and, you know, whatever they can do to stay engaged. Um, and I, and I think that that was evident when we did our international exchanges too with the University of Oslo. Um, you know, some of the students don't have a space where they can have their camera on, but they're still very much engaged. Um, and to your point about the relative share of international students, the interesting thing about our partnership is that our curriculum and our program is, is designed with the anticipation that students will be employed, typically employed domestically. So we have a lot of domestic students and a handful of international students, whereas the, the Norwegian program is almost all international and maybe one domestic Norwegian per, per program class. And so when we bring ourselves together, we, we really are able to bring a, a huge share of the globe in terms of understanding the comparative contexts. And so we've been discussing how are different nations and universities dealing with the COVID pandemic itself and how is it affecting universities? Because we're in the favorable position of not just living through it, but being scholars who study these sorts of things about the exogenous shock of a you know, pandemic on the institution of higher education as higher ed scholars. Mm -hmm. So what are the governance issues? What are the you know, enrollment impacts? All, you know, what are the, the systematic ways of using data to reform um, funding problems? Yeah, it is interesting to be right in the middle of something. And Jeff, certainly, you know, as you go forward in your career too, here you will have had this sort of interesting incubation period for the ideas you have and for the things you might like to investigate in terms of educational policy and so on. And I mean, you're right, right in the middle of a, of a very um, creative time, I suppose, for uh, someone studying as you are. Yeah, this is a very kind of like... Uh, tough but situation so i mean we just need to find a way to adapt to it and hope that we can get a better situation next year mm -hmm. yeah yeah uh, um amy let me come back to you as we close up this segment um for the students who are studying english as a second language uh how long is say a student is an incoming freshman Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure there's a range of time uh, a student might be taking uh, ESL courses. Uh, it's not the same, I suppose, for all students, but is that usually uh, one semester or could be a couple of semesters that a student would take ESL yeah, courses? Exactly. So um, we have a, a unique program in that we assess all incoming international students um, for their language abilities and to, to find out what it is that they need support for to be successful in their courses. And, and so 
if someone is only say has has some weakness in writing, then they're only taking writing with us. Mm -hmm. um, and so it really depends on the student and the strength of their language coming in. Um, the maximum that an undergraduate coming in would take would be five courses, and that would be all the skills. Mm -hmm. um, so they would take that over two semesters. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, when they have less to take, you know, maybe they have one or two. Typically, they'll take one the first semester, maybe one the second semester. So they do have, you know, the flexibility to go ahead and start their major courses as well. Yeah. And have you felt that there's, um, we of course heard what you said earlier about how really wonderful it was that students, a number of students decided to come and mm -hmm. start this year, even under the circumstances we're in. Have you, have you found that that um, um, excitement sort of waned once, once they got, uh, you know, into the thick of it? Or, or, you know, did they begin to acclimate? Is it your impression that they really um, did find their way uh, as you would have expected and hoped? Yeah, overall, I've been really impressed. And you know, the first semester for, for new students in, in higher education is difficult, no matter what, under any circumstances, right? It's a huge adjustment period. Um, I think the main frustration for students who have not been able to join us, um, but have started nonetheless, is, is kind of trying to balance because usually, you know, when you go off to college, you have that that physical move, yeah. you have the, the change in all of your environment and surroundings that, that accompany that change. So for many of our students, the challenge of maintaining kind of uh, their role and status in their family home and the responsibilities that entails and those kinds of things are the biggest challenge and kind of obstacle to being successful mm -hmm. um, in their classes now. You know, and another degree in some cases, the time difference. Um, certainly when our time changed and other people's didn't, their classes all got later and like pushed past midnight, for example, or, you know, next week when, when we have final exams scheduled all during the day. Now, you know, some of my students who've been having class in the evening are gonna have a 4.30 a.m. final. And, you know, and that's difficult, um, you know, but I think, I think they're all really anxious um, to come and be in person. Um, but I give them so much credit, um, because especially the language classes for a lot of these students are their only synchronous contact with the university. Um, and I think we do also play a really important role in that respect, mm -hmm. you know, that they have someone who they're meeting with in person, you know, kind of face to face, though, virtually they have that point of contact. They have someone they feel like they can talk to and talk things through with, um, so that's another important role that we play. Yeah, yeah. Terrific. Wow. Well, I want to say thank you all for uh, joining us. I'm afraid we've uh, come to the end of this segment as well. So Cassie Barnhart, thank you. And Jeff Lai, thank you. And Amy Alice Chastain, really a pleasure to talk to all of you. I appreciate it. And we thank hope you, that... Yeah, yeah. And we hope that everyone uh, listening can stay with us. We have one more segment. Uh, we're going to be hearing some personal stories about education in a time of virtual learning. So we'll be back in just a moment. And uh, thank you again. Hi again, I'm Joan Kerr, and this is World Canvas from International Programs. Real pleasure to have you with us as we welcome our third uh, group of guests to join us uh, for this uh, third segment. Um, our guests are Monica Ernberger, 
advisor in study abroad in international programs here at the University of Iowa. Thank you, Monica, for joining us. Uh, also, we have Lynette Lang, who is an undergraduate student in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences here at the university. Hi, Lynette, thank you. And a uh, special welcome to uh, Volkan Orhan, who is a, a professor in the, uh, color, the School of Music here at the University of Iowa, a double bass uh, professor. Hi, Volkan, thanks for being with us. Um, so, you know, you've heard the earlier part of the discussion, I'm sure all of you, and um, this time we want to talk just a little bit about what some of your own experiences have been. And I, I do want to go first to you, Monica, because I know that you, um, working in study abroad, have been involved, of course, in all of these changes that have had to happen, bringing the kids back, some uh, programs being canceled, all programs canceled in the summer and fall and now spring, we know. And uh, then as we look forward to the summer, um, things have changed and a lot of new programs have been developed. And one of them uh, is a virtual internship program. Uh, Lynette will be talking about that. And I wonder if you can give us a little bit of, of uh, background on it as well. Absolutely. I, I'm really quite proud of our university and the way we've responded to some of these things that have been going on. So last summer we had almost 100 students ready to head out to do our usual on-site internships uh, in a, about 14 different countries. These are all for credit, by the way, and run through our partner provider programs. Due to COVID, then we had to pivot and do so quite quickly because we had students who were graduating who had experiential learning requirements for their certificates or uh, other requirements for their programs. and. Uh, we had students who were stranded here in the US looking for things to do. We had students who were stranded abroad looking for things to do. Um, it was just a, a huge um, moment of a disorienting dilemma as they would say in some learning theories. And it was a, a hidden opportunity for us to actually become a, a leader in this new field of virtual global internships. Um, I proposed moving forward with virtual global internships and had almost immediate buy-in from our leadership group to move forward with this new approach. We were one of the first universities to dive into this shift in the nature of these programs. We connected with four provider partners who had each developed unique aspects to their programs, enabling them to become virtual in nature. And you know what's really fantastic is students have been able to do these global experiences in one or more countries that all while, you know, continuing to work or take classes here at the University of Iowa and, and do the things that they need to do here from home. So it's really pretty fantastic in, in many respects. It's a, it's a hidden lining, a silver lining inside of a, a otherwise sort of dark cloud. Mm -hmm. Well, so, so to just, uh, um, you know, reflect back a year or so, um, of an internship that would have been in person. You would have worked with your providers, your colleagues around the world to help set up an experience for the student to go there, to meet um, uh, in person the, uh, the mentors or the uh, professors with whom they might be working. Um, maybe it's a marketing internship and you're right there in the office with other folks doing the work you want to do. Um, the virtual, uh, Lynette is an, ex an experienced uh, virtual internship um, <laughs> participant here, and, and we wanted her to tell us a little bit about the really exciting work she's been able to do. And um, Monica, I know that you're very close to this situation that Lynette has, has been in. Um, first of all, Lynette, I'm just so pleased to meet you because, boy, you have, you have so much initiative and have, um, you know, you. 
Yeah, because you had taken um, uh, real life in person uh, study abroad prior to your virtual internship, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, no, sorry, keep going. No, no, I was just going to say, tell us a little bit about that, that um, actual study abroad experience and then why you decided to go ahead and get involved in a virtual internship. Oh, yes. Okay. So um, my spring semester, I was fortunate enough to study abroad in Madrid, Spain, as I'm a Spanish major. So I wanted to really get experiential learning that in person and just learning the Spanish language and gaining that fluency that only comes really when you're in like a a total Spanish speaking environment. And, you know, because of the pandemic, I was sent home early. And originally I had plans to study abroad in the spring and the summer. So I would study in Madrid and then Valladolid, a smaller town in Spain, just outside of Madrid, actually. But um, be- but because of the pandemic, I was sent home and I was very, very sad, very disappointed that all these plans I had for this year were canceled. And um, I was also fortunate enough to receive the Gilman scholarship for my spring, I mean, for my summer semester. And they were really gracious. And they told me that, you know, you like, I wouldn't just lose this scholarship. I could use it for a future like study abroad plan. But unfortunately, um, I'm also a pre-med student. So I have a lot of things gearing up in my junior year, in my third year. And so I I was thinking to myself, okay, well, even if the pandemic like ended next year, I would not be able to study abroad again. Like, I would not have the time. And I was, I was discouraged, but then I um, reached out to my study abroad advisor who referred me to Monica, who t- then told me about an internship. And I never thought about an internship as a pre-health student because I always thought it's just what business students do and not, not something I I'm, like, that's something for me, but looking into it and seeing like how you, there were internships that were focused on exactly what I'm very passionate about. So health and wellness and specifically palliative care with my internship, I was, I was amazed. And so I was actually quite fortunate with the virtual internship because I could still use my scholarship and participate in an internship on an, in an online format that I would not be able to in person if we were, um, we were, if we were without the pandemic or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So you're working with a doctor in Italy or have been yeah. working with a doctor in Italy. And so how, how does it work? You meet what, once a week or? Yeah. Um, we meet sporadically, I would say. We meet um, bi-weekly, sometimes weekly. And um, he emails me a lot because of the time difference. So it's hard to set up a time. Um, but we, we, we try to make it work every other week or so. But we communicate a lot over email. And um, it has been so just... I can't even describe the experience. I can't, I'm so speechless when it comes to it. It's just been so eye-opening. Um, even, and I was amazed too, like with the virtual format, I was thinking, you know, this will be interesting, but will I really get that much out of it? Because, uh, you know, it's just all online, like it's not in person. But I have to say like, it has definitely changed um, me in many ways in that, like just learning how to communicate online. And I think even without the pandemic, this world is becoming more and more advanced in technology. So learning how to communicate through like like documents or um, just getting like in different ways that wouldn't be like that need to be 
instead of being in person sorry and um just like that so I think it's just it's been so cool to learn how to how to communicate and how to adapt really because um with this online format yeah yeah um uh, Monica back to you Uh, there are things I take it that students can um learn through virtual internships that would be learned differently if you were on site. I think this is kind of what Lynette was just uh, getting to here. And in one of your interviews, Lynette, that I that I had a chance to read earlier, you said that you felt that um, it really was very helpful to you in the sense that you had to set your own schedule. You had to be your own boss to make sure that you were um, setting aside time to work. Um, you didn't have an office to go to, which sort of made you accountable in one sort of way, but you had to kind of, you know, wrap your own arms around that. And, and, and that alone is a really good learning experience. Oh, yes, for sure. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, um, even I think my first project, when it was coming up to the deadline, I was like, oh my goodness, it's in a few days and time had totally gone past me. I hadn't realized. And I realized from then I needed to be very, Uh, take initiative be very on top of my schedule and I would say I would not have probably learned that with in person having to go in every day and then being accountable by other people but this time it was my responsibility to be accountable to myself and of course to um, Dr. Martucci my supervisor. That's something that we really uh, talk with students about is uh, achieving that work-life balance in an independent way because uh, you know as Lynette said not only is there a time difference But since, uh, you know, in this case, students who are now doing them in the semester, which they weren't able to do before, by the way, I mean, when these are just three or four credit classes, almost always they were done in the summer. So now we've got students in the semester able to take advantage of something they never would have before in answer to your question about how these are, you know, providing unique experiences. Um, But to take a full course load and then do this, you really have to have that self-discipline of not letting yourself get overloaded and being able to piece out the things that you have to do so that you do have a steady stream of work that you're not just engulfed in then not doing anything the next week. So, um, you know, as we all know, the workplace has changed forever. I mean, remote work skills are one of the hottest things that employers are going to be looking for when it comes to the virtual career fairs that these graduating students are going to be going to. And so folks like Lynette who are, you know, looking at grad school or med school or looking at a company or organization, they're really going to have something that a lot of other people aren't going to have. Um, and that's really what I want is I want these students to be employable, to be able to achieve their career goals and aspirations and to have that transformative global experience, even if they can't get on a plane and go do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in some cases, students are actually able to have a multinational uh, experience, which absolutely couldn't have happened before. We had a student uh, last summer who worked with an NGO in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, and then got placed in uh, Laos at a um, magazine for trans uh, citizens there, and so was able to actually work in Europe and Asia, all while being here in North America. So, you know, how how cool is that? That is just not something that a lot of people are going to be able to say they were able to do. And uh, just hats off to this student because, you know, internships aren't, as you said, for business necessarily only anymore. Students are doing research. They're getting experience in career fields like, uh, as Lynette said, public health and, and um, social services, law, music. They're also exploring uh, critical world issues with some of the top experts in their fields. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these are really innovative 
really uh, unusual experiences and ways for students to stand out when they're uh, getting ready for that next stage uh, post yeah. Iowa. Yeah, uh, and Monica, I would just like to know, you know, you said you got buy-in really immediately from leadership in international programs because this was something that we really could grab onto and, and uh, really help our students do something during this odd pandemic time. Why did you think this was such an important thing to open up to students? You know, for me, uh, that, that transformative dilemma, I, I had actually been at a conference and saw tables set up for virtual experiences and I thought, why would anybody want to do that, you know? And when this whole thing came up, it really uh, was a moment of self-reflection for me and a chance to think, you know, how are we gonna be able to serve our students' needs? And is this something that could potentially fill a need that hasn't been filled? So, you know, we've got all of these students who maybe could not have taken advantage of one of these experiences before, you know? working adults, uh, students, you know, DACA students, students with immigration uh, complications, students whose families need them to be home over the summer to earn money for the family or to take care of younger siblings, uh, working adults, uh, students with children. I mean, it just goes on and on. All of these students who maybe could not have just taken a summer off to go do an internship. Yeah. Um, and so they're all these students and, you know, financially alone, you know, so many families have been impacted by COVID in, in a negative way financially, and maybe, you know, their families are being more conservative when it comes to discretionary funds. And so when you look at a $2,000 uh, virtual internship, as opposed to a $6,000 in-person internship with no plane tickets, no visa costs, you know, it's really a win-win financially for some of these students who, you know, we just really want to make sure that that we have those global experiences, no matter what their situation. Sure, so I'm assuming that your goal would be to have some version of this available, even once people can get out and travel again, that this would be something uh, worthwhile in terms of mm -hmm. what we offer to our students. Yep, no, uh, I, uh, I've spoken uh, at, a, at a conference about this. I have consulted with several of our provider organizations and other universities about the importance of keeping these on long-term. Mm -hmm. Because to me, it's not an either or, it, you know, we're going to be looking at more and more hybrid experiences as we go forward. You know, this for the student who can do that route, this for the student who needs a different route. Uh, it's looking at things with a more universal design in mind rather than a, you know, this is one size fits all. So, no, I really see these as, as a transformative change in our field um, going forward. Yeah. Well, I want to go to you now, Volkan, uh, your music professor, and um, uh, we're obviously going to talk about some of the things you have done uh, virtually in terms of uh, sort of global exchange with some master classes and so on. But I'd also like to get a little bit of a description from you of what it's been like to teach music students um, in the new circumstances, because as we all know, music students um, very often perform closely in ensembles or there is very direct work with uh, your faculty member, if, if you're a student studying violin, or in your case, double bass. Uh, what is it like this semester teaching in the School of Music? Well, uh, pandemic affected everyone, obviously. Um, and so is our profession and field in a much bigger way, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, the teaching changed because of the, you know, I mean, this connection, you know, with outside the you know institution or the city that we live in or the you know university setting 
um, also opened up a lot of possibilities to connect with international, you know, professors and artists that actually can really share their information and also experience with our students here, which we actually have um, uh, tomorrow. We have a master class scheduled with Jerusalem Academy uh, with Michael Klinghoffer, Dr. Michael Klinghoffer. And this whole thing kind of started out of a conversation and just saying like, well, we should do something together. We have now this ability to connect with each other. And, you know, uh, so we're going to do some exchange uh, collaboration. And I think that's really exciting. Uh, in my opinion, I haven't seen him years and it will be great to have him connect with us tomorrow. Yeah, uh, so, outside so of that, I mean, you know, there, there were a lot of things that obviously changed. Um, I feel grateful I, to be able to actually connect with uh, students, even though during the pandemic that, you know, um, we've been lucky uh, that actually we were able to, you know, mitigate our building to actually a function and con continue with the instruction this fall. And uh, thanks to Dr. Walker and the team of, um, I mean, doctors and, you know, engineers and scientists that actually came up with all these mitigation plans and adjustments with filtration and ventilation of the building, um, all these things actually made everything possible to kind of continue with what we do today. Um, but in general, I mean, you know, obviously nothing replaces in-person, face-to-face instruction for our profession because there's, there's a lot of um, things that kind of don't work as well as just like a conversation, you know, from a distance. There's latency issues and things like that. And, um, but I mean, you know, I have been actually using this technology for a long time due to my um, instrument, double bass, you know, because of the size. Uh, travel is always an issue. So we always consider, um, I always consider actually reaching out to students and make, um, you know, connecting more feasible and, you know, available for them to be able to actually take a lesson or just like actually come, you know, connect and do their audition from um, from wherever they are. Um, so I before even pandemic, I actually was in connection with the engineers in Zoom and talking about like, how can they make this adjustment? Because I mean, there's a there's a big problem in terms of like when you're teaching one on one, even though you have great connection on one end, you have to have that stability to be able to actually run everything smoothly. Um, so Everyone actually, you know, came up with their own way and, um, and I mean, you know, the hardest part probably, I mean, I feel for my colleagues that who teach voice or old other aerosol instru instrument lessons and things like that. Um, you know, obviously they can't be in the same place for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, I had the ability to be able to actually teach in one place, but at the same time, you know, some students preferred being on, you know, on, on Zoom and whatnot. So what I came up with was basically I would ask them to record their uh, whatever the piece that they've been working on, prepare and record day before or a couple of days before for me to review. And then when we get together during their lesson time, then we could actually talk about um, what are the things that we should be working on. Oh. So um, that has been kind of working for me, honestly. But I mean, that's what we're going to do tomorrow as well. So I don't know what kind of connection speed we're going to have with Jerusalem Academy tomorrow. So we prepared videos and sent it to him, and then he's going to connect with us and do one-on-one -on -one, uh, interaction and the teaching from that. So. Yeah. 
Now that that sounds great. And uh, with uh, students at the Jerusalem Academy, um, are, are your are your master classes only for the students who are who play double bass, or is this something that that goes to a wider group of students? We have not actually figured out that part. I mean, um, Michael is going to be connecting tomorrow here to teach my students. Hmm. And then uh, I think in January that he was planning on doing some kind of a setting for me to connect with them. Uh, but he, he wasn't sure what setting that was going to happen in terms of um, either whole school music or, you know, their bass studio or whatnot. We have not gotten that far. Yeah, well, it's so sad to know that, you know, with no live events available really anywhere, certainly not in the United States, and then um, orchestral performances and, and other kinds of live events in other parts of the world too, it's all so limited, if not entirely shut down right now, um, must be very, very trying for you and for your friends in music who, who really want to be out there playing and performing. And um, I know people have been creative with, you know, coming up with their own Sunday afternoon concerts or whatever but have you talked to to friends who are really feeling of course um, you have a faculty position and so your entire income isn't dependent upon a live performance somewhere but for those folks for whom it is oh my gosh I mean this is a disastrous time yeah um, I, I have friends all over you know the country and the, you know um, world really and they're all affected by this obviously because it's just you know the nature of what it is it's like uh, people are you know who are working in metropolitan cities won't have the able you know ability to do that anymore because i mean obviously the you know institutions or the the um companies that actually run these broadway shows to symphony concerts and things like that they're all being canceled not by purpose i mean you know on purpose obviously they want to run mm -hmm. and function but obviously they have limited, you know, resources and um, ability to do so. Yeah. So I, I really feel for all my colleagues out there and, you know, I, I just don't know how else to really reach out and yeah. um, help the, the situation really. It is yeah. really always in my mind though. Yeah, no, I can imagine. Um, Monica, have there been any students who are music students who have looked for the virtual internships that are um, available? At, up to this point, we haven't. However, we have had music students in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a, a music student who was actually connected with the Vienna Opera House. Uh, mm -hmm. This was a, a vocal performance student. And so I see no reason why those couldn't continue forward as well in, in a very similar fashion to what the professor was discussing. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, you're going to have to deal with the time differences. But um, you know, com, you know, swapping videos of, of performance pieces, uh, filming rehearsals, things like that. I just see a wealth of opportunities mm -hmm. out there to to kind of shift that direction. Mm -hmm. Volkan, is there anything that you would say is one of those sort of silver lining things that has happened during this, um, you know, from your position as a as a music professor? Is is there anything that um, you would say has sort of opened up a new way of thinking about collaborations or thinking about um, performance, something that you maybe hadn't expected? Well, uh, I mean, as I was just saying, I think having to connect with colleagues, you know, around the world or just in, in the country, it's it's huge in, in that way in terms of like, you know, avoiding all those expenses in terms of travel yeah. and all of that uh, is definitely a plus. 
-hmm. And there, there are, you know, pluses and minuses as, as anything else goes. But I mean, you know, that is probably the biggest thing that just really I have seen that improved in terms of collaboration and uh, connecting with people outside. Mm -hmm. um, other than that, I mean, I think it's just, we know pandemic as it is. I mean, you know, it's affecting everyone. It's not just one field, really. Uh, we just need to, we, I mean, again, like, I don't think anyone has asked for this. We just need to kind of write it out and, you know, make the best we can and move forward. Mm -hmm. And when the time comes, I think just celebrate. Going <laughs> concerts and whatnot, mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I have had thoughts about, you know, maybe playing online, mm -hmm. uh, doing some some things, you know, just online directly to audiences through uh, internet and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I honestly haven't had a chance to really explore that uh, with everything else that's going on, kind of, you know, because it's just an adjustment that I have to kind of really you know, think about too, someone was actually talking about like really scheduling. I think Monica was talking about really how to manage your time. This was totally new. And when I'm making my teaching schedule, I usually kind of do, you know, certain things and check who's available what time and then make up my schedule based on that. Um, and it was not the same because I mean, I think teaching and, you know, really following through everything that, I mean, you know, you need to kind of mute or turn your video off so you can actually improve the latency and all of this stuff just like it really is it's really so much more involved mm -hmm. and there's no time in between you can't really just kind of take and walk away from anything or just walk down and you know grab something to drink or whatever yeah. even even so i think it feels so much more intense than just normal teaching so mm -hmm. i wasn't actually expecting that at all when i was planning my fall teaching so i'm going to be actually probably thinking about that a little bit more closer but just live and learn just like anything. yeah 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 well I know that when I have just been you know on uh, Facebook or social media and I see that uh, a musician has posted uh, a performance uh, you know I think of a, of a name like a yo-yo ma you know and it just mm -hmm. pops up on my screen it's so absolutely wonderful to hear a performance and to see a musician you know moving in front of you again even even though it's just on a screen it it for me it's it's wonderful it's one thing to hear it it's another thing to see a person's facial expression and to see the way they move when they stroke the strings and so on it's it's really quite wonderful and i i know that i'm so looking forward to the time when we can you know see you play again in a in a public space and um nothing you know it replaces live performance i mean that personally get you know engagement and you know mm -hmm. seeing that happening live i think we need to have that back as soon as we can i mean that's yeah. what we're i mean yeah. i'm just speaking yeah. for myself i'm sure my colleagues i've got a super quick plug into for hancher auditorium by the way absolutely. Uh, sure. i i absolutely loved watching uh lincoln center jazz yeah. live yeah. and one of the things that occurred to me was that when we're talking about reaching the you know the populations the students who wouldn't be able to experience things we have a lot of, uh, you know, uh, seniors uh, out there who might have mobility issues and that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. they're actually able to participate in that experience without having to come into the auditorium. And also, you're this close. So, you know, normally I'd be up in the nosebleed seats. Mm -hmm. And with the Lincoln Center Jazz, I was right there watching, you know. So yeah. there are some, Absolutely. for me, those little nuggets, too. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Uh, Lynette, let's just round this all out with you. Uh, so you said you are now going into your, you next year you'll be a junior? 
This is my junior year. This is your junior year now. Yeah. So now you're getting into your pre-med required courses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like application. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Gosh. And that's going well, I hope. And um, Uh, yes, it is. (laughs) I'm really sad. This internship is like almost over actually, because now I have to focus on studying for the MCAT and it's, but I think it's really fired me up for my application and like personal statement really has set my sights to the global perspective. And so that's what I really appreciate from this internship. Yeah, gosh. Wow. I can't thank you all enough for being with us. This is just such an interesting, um, interesting conversation. And I think, you know, I, I hope that we're past the middle of this pandemic period and can start to look forward to a time when maybe things will return to a little bit more normal circumstances. But um, really grateful that you could all be with us this afternoon. And uh, so I want to say thank you to Volkan Orhan, to Monica Ernberger, and to Lynette Lang, and of course to all of our earlier guests as well. Um, All World Canvas programs are available on iTunes and the Public Radio Exchange and the International Programs website. And you'll also be able to view this program on YouTube. And I hope you'll be able to join us for the next World Canvas on February 24th, when our special guest will be the renowned author, Yag Yazi. Um, So I'm Joan Kerr. I wish you happy holidays and a lot of joy in the new year. Thank you for being with us for World Canvas. Good night.